quite a sight, wasn't it? 23 third graders, 23 ninth graders, all receiving the good news. That's our work. That's what we're called to do. That's why we exist, in fact, to pass on the faith so that our young people will know that God loves them and has claimed them all the days of their lives and that there's nothing in this life, nothing in this world that would ever cause them to be separated from our God. What a good day it is. Friends, uh, if you're visiting this morning, maybe you're a grandparent of one of those young people who was just on the steps, you need to know that we are launching into a new sermon series through the month of uh, September and October. We are preaching our new vision statement. Our new vision statement here at Preston Hollow is trusting that all belong to God, living like we belong to one another. In order to trust that all belong to God, something uh, has to happen first. You have to trust that you belong to God. And so last week, uh, we looked at Genesis 1 and the creation narrative in a, in a new way through a different lens. And uh, if, you, if you didn't listen to that sermon, I would, uh, I would encourage you to do that. We're on iTunes. You can check us out on the website. But this week, third graders and ninth graders, you need to know that our story comes from a particular passage in the Bible that not a lot of preachers have dog-eared in their own Bibles. This is a tough text. It will make us feel uncomfortable about Jesus a little bit. It will also make us feel a bit uncomfortable about ourselves, but we got to hang in there because this text is in the Bible. Uh, we're going to turn to the, the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Sarah Johnson preached on this passage this morning, but we, or not this morning, uh, this summer, but we believe Scripture is sort of like a gem that when you hold it up and rotate it, you can see different layers through the light. And so we're going to explore uh, this text again this day. So listen now for the word of the Lord to all of us this morning. Jesus left that place and went into the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know that he had entered a house, but he couldn't hide. In fact, a woman whose young daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard about him right away. And she came and fell at his feet. The woman was Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth. She begged Jesus to throw the demon out of her daughter, and Jesus responded, the children have to be fed first. It isn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. But she answered, Lord, Lord, even uh, the dogs under the table, even the dogs eat the children's crumbs. Good answer, he said. Go on home. The demon has already left your daughter. When she returned to her house, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Friends, this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Remind us, O oh God, that you hover here. You hover in this very sanctuary, just like you hovered over the waters of creation. So we ask that you would create a fresh and a new this very day, that 
you would breathe new life into these ancient words. They might be your word to us here and now, and that you would breathe new life into the words of my mouth, into the meditations of all of our hearts, that all would be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Archbishop Desmond Tutu is a hero. He's won the Nobel Peace Prize for his work fighting against apartheid in South Africa. Desmond Tutu grew up a black South African man in some of the hardest years of apartheid in South Africa. His mother worked for a white family cleaning the house and cooking the food. Archbishop Tutu worked all of his days, and still works to this day, fighting against the system that he experienced as a young boy, and especially as a teenager. He had an experience uh, several years ago that revealed just how integral his upbringing had been on him, but it's not what you think. Desmond Tutu uh, was boarding an airplane one day. He was catching a flight, and as he crossed the threshold into the airplane, he, the stewardesses, where they were standing right there, along with both of the pilots dressed in their pilot uniforms, both of these pilots were black South African men. And Archbishop Tutu thought, this is the proudest day of my entire life. Here stand two black South African men ready to pilot our plane. Everything that we have worked for has made this moment possible. Archbishop Tutu said that he walked to his seat and he was standing about three inches higher. He said he's never held his head as high in his entire life. He gets to his seat, finds his way, sits down, Halfway through the flight, the stewardesses come. They're taking drink orders. And Desmond Tutu says they hit the mother of all turbulence. The bottom fell out of the airplane. And Archbishop Tutu says the very first thought that came to my mind when we hit that turbulence was this. Boy, do we need some real pilots to get this airplane out of the turbulence. Those boys up there aren't going to be able to make it. His thought took his breath away. He had been working every single day of his life. He put his family's life on the line. He risked everything so that those two guys could pilot the airplane and even he couldn't help but think man do we need some real pilots Desmond Tutu is one of the greatest and most faithful crusaders for a quality that our world has ever known and yet even his heart even his heart was damaged by the racist and dehumanizing history of his homeland. Even his heart 
Friends, uh, where and when you grew up impacts how you see and live in the world. True for Desmond Tutu, true for you and me, but also true for this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was uh, fully human, fully God. But I don't think that made Jesus immune from seeing the world through the lens of being Jewish. A male from Nazareth. So when Jesus encounters a Syrophoenician woman who is desperate to save her daughter, literally, she has nowhere else to turn. She carries that particular burden. Jesus sees what his hometown has taught him to see. He sees a a Gentile. That's not even a person of a different faith. That's an idol worshiper. He sees a woman when women are ritually unclean, he sees a person outside the people of Israel. That means that someone, he sees someone who does not belong to God's chosen ones. Jesus at first glance, Jesus at first glance, sees what he's been taught to see. He doesn't see her. The response that we hear from Jesus is shocking, unthinkable, really, even for those of us who love Jesus, who call Jesus Lord, those of us who have accepted Jesus. He replies to her, the children have to be fed first. It isn't right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. He's inferring that she's a dog. Dogs were a pejorative Jewish term for Gentiles. And let's be uh, really clear, these aren't the cute little puppies that you pose with in your Christmas cards that you send me in the mail at Christmas, okay? (laughs) We're not talking about those cute little puppies. No, dogs during the uh, time of Jesus are sort of a mix between a hyena and a rat. Now, I don't know, maybe you have one of those at home. (laughs) It's not nice to talk about your kids that way, but you may have one of those at home. But you sure aren't posing with those kind of dogs and including them in your Christmas card. At least you haven't sent me one anyway. Dogs in the New Testament are known to be unclean. They're known to be scavengers. So, when, so being called a dog, not nice. Not nice at all. Being called a dog meant that you could never belong to the people of God, that you were unclean and outside. And Jesus, the Son of God, calls a woman this. Oh no, I don't think that Jesus was beyond being shaped by his hometown. Jesus was just being a good and faithful Jewish man from Nazareth. He's seeing exactly what his culture taught him to see. Let me say, uh, I've wrestled with this text a lot this week. A lot. And the more that I've wrestled with this text, the more I have come to believe that this isn't the first time this woman has ever been called a dog. For she responds to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Her reply is too good. This is the kind of reply that you cook up 45 minutes after the argument. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, if I would have just said it that way, that would have totally leveled him. 
She doesn't even lose a breath and she fires it off. Her reply is rooted in the truth that is found after you've searched your soul. Her truth is rooted in the truth that is found when you can't bear another insult, another dismissal, another half-hearted welcome. No, her reply is too good. Her reply is confident. It's the reply of a woman who has had to bear the pain of being shamed for who she is and who carries that extra burden. The extra burden of a child who's sick. A child who's at death's door. Can't get any help. Let me just say no one should have to carry that kind of burden. Nobody. She replies as a woman who has discovered her own value. Her own belonging in the family of God, despite what the world around her might say. She knows She's going to be dismissed and even insulted by other people. But she also knows that she's been claimed by Almighty God. For she says, even the dogs under the table can feed on the scraps. She's saying, um, you know that those little flakes of bread, even the little crumbs that fall from the table after the people of Israel have had their feast, even those crumbs that congregate by your feet... The crumbs are enough. For in the crumbs, we can even taste God's love, God's grace, God's mercy. For in the crumbs, we find our, our identity and our belonging. In other words, uh, Jesus, Son of God, God's love and God's grace, big enough to include me. Did you notice uh, in our passage this morning that her response doesn't change her status? Doesn't change her status. Uh, she's still a Gentile, a woman, a Syrophoenician, but something shifts in Jesus' eyes. Jesus' eyes are open to the wider understanding of God's love, the truth that she embodies. Theological word, uh, the truth that she incarnates changes Jesus' understanding of who is included in God's healing and God's love. She makes the truth of God. She makes the truth of God's expansive love known to the Son of God who comes to see her as a child of God. So friends, uh, if this text challenged Jesus... It probably challenges us too. This text can uh, make us feel a little uncomfortable. We can get a little uneasy. Because it challenges us to consider who we were taught isn't included in God's love. Because where we are from and when we were raised informs our understanding who's included in the beloved community. For example... I'm from Aiken, South Carolina. I love South Carolina. I love a lot about South Carolina. I love South Carolina peaches. You Texans have been trying to convince me that Texas peaches are better. They're not. <laughs> it's okay. We'll still love each other. I love Hootie and the Blowfish. <laughs> Truly, I love them. 
I love springtime in the south. I love horse races. I love fall in the south. I love college football. I love a tailgate. And I love boiled peanuts. I also love bow ties. I love a lot about my home state. And uh, it informs much of my identity, but we all know that there is also a shadow side of where I grew up. Let's just say, and we'll be generous, that South Carolina has never quite been the bastion of inclusion. I know words and have heard them used in the context of a sentence that I wish that I never knew. And they're much worse than the word dog. I wish I didn't know them. I grew up in high school uh, in a church where elders would write letters to the state newspaper, letters to the editor, to try to get the Confederate flag down from the state house. I love a lot about where I'm from, but it's got a shadow side. It's got a shadow side. But you know that's changing slowly where I'm from. I was home this summer. And you can feel it shifting just a little. It's really small. South Carolina, after all. I think it's changing because people uh, are beginning to encounter one another in the flesh, incarnate. And their understanding is no longer based on what they were taught, but what they have come to experience in the humanity of others. A few years ago, I was listening to a sports talk uh, show on the radio, the Paul Feinbaum show. And there's some folks who may listen to that show in the sanctuary or on the radio this morning, and you're thinking, it is a miracle of God that this preacher has found a way to work the Paul Feinbaum show into a sermon. <laughs> but this story won't let me go. It's a story about what I'm talking about. In 2008, a caller named Jay called into the Paul Feinbaum show, and he said, hey, Paul, I want to share a story with you. He said, I was raised in Alabama, and I was raised a racist. I was very proud of it. My father was in the KKK. All of my uncles were in the KKK, and I believed in the ideology and the values of the KKK. But in 1967, I uh, joined the Marine Corps. I considered myself strong, brave, and stupid, and I wanted to go to Vietnam, and I got my wish. My first day in Vietnam... As big as a redneck I was, I met what I considered to be the most militant, acting, and talking black person that had ever walked the face of the earth. Less than an hour after meeting one another, we tried to kill one another. And then we tried to kill one another at least once a week for every week that went by. Until one day, our gunny sergeant pulled us apart and he said, Boys, if you don't stop this, I'm going to send you home with a dishonorable discharge. So we put aside our differences, and we turned out to be fair soldiers, I guess. 
I mean, let me be clear. We still had a strong animosity towards one another. But over the next two years, he saved my life a couple times. I saved his life a couple times. And we spent the entire time in Vietnam together. And in 1969, we were sent home. I moved back to Alabama and went to school. And he moved back to Detroit and resumed his life. After I got out of college, as dumb as I was, I managed to get an engineering degree. He and I would talk pretty regular over the years. We had become what I guess you would call friends. And he wasn't having a good time or a good life in Detroit, so I told him, well, why don't you come on down here and you can go to work with the same company that I work for. So we did. He wound up working for me. Then he decided he would go to school and get his degree, and so we did. And then he decided that he wanted to outdo me, which he always did. And he went on to get his master's. And so he did. And I ended up working for him. Paul, you know, on April the 2nd, this coming year, I will have been married to his sister for 32 years. He was the best man at my wedding. Paul, we, uh, we have two sons apiece, me and him. All four of them graduated from the University of Alabama. Roll Tide, he said. He lives three houses down from me. We've been neighbors for almost 30 years now, and we love nothing more than to get together in the evenings as often as we can and tell lies about the good old days. I guess it just goes to show you, Paul, anything really can happen. Friends, uh, where and when you were raised, where and when you were born, teaches you how to see the world. But it doesn't mean that when a greater truth arrives at your doorstep, that that greater truth doesn't change everything for you. Jesus didn't want to be bothered. And a woman had no Where else to go? And that holy encounter changed the entire way he saw the world. The circle of compassion grew for him. A guy from Alabama whose family was in the KKK met a guy from Detroit. And they came to embody the family that I think God intends for all of us. Friends, may we trust that all belong to God. And may we seek to live like we belong to one another. We'll never do it perfectly. By the grace of God, we will come to recognize Jesus 
disguised as our neighbor, our friend, and our enemy. Thanks be to God. Let us pray.